We continue our teaching this morning with 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, the first 13 verses. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not in vain. We'd previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the appeal that we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please people, but God, who tests our hearts. You know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else. Even though, as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority, instead we were gentle among you. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, in our toil and hardship, we worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging comforting, urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And we also thank God continually, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. This is the word of the Lord. So just some quick context for your benefit before we dive into this passage. This church in Thessalonica is is very young and fragile. Paul had only been there for three weeks. He had only been there over three Sabbath services teaching that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of all of Israel's history. He was the one, the Christ, the Messiah, who was prophesied, who would come, who ultimately would do what none of us could do, and that is live a life that is holy unto God and die a sacrificial death as the ultimate sacrifice, as the greater than the priest, greater than the temple, greater than all the sacrifices, through his death and his resurrection, reunites us to God. This letter took place around 15 years after the resurrection, and it's just this overnight explosion of those worshipping this Jesus Christ as God. This abandonment of their worldviews and their traditions and their histories, precisely because we're not believing with our fingers crossed in a missing body theory, but that they had seen the resurrected Christ, it changed the world. And so because that's true, Paul was asserting in the the synagogues that Jesus Christ uh, was alive and had risen from the dead. And of course, the religious leaders rejected this, and they they run him out of Thessalonica. There were many Jews who did believe Jesus Christ was the Messiah, but those religious leaders who did not, it's because the resurrected Christ was a threat to their power. And if you're trying to... If you're trying to control power and authority and build a monument to yourself and sort of lead in a narcissistic way, then the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a threat to everything you're trying to grasp onto because now your system of dead religion is no longer needed. So they they run Paul out of town. And then what happens is not only they run him out of town, now now they're going around to this little vulnerable church and they're making lots of accusations about Paul to discredit him. And so this passage that we just read is actually Paul sort of defending himself. But he's not defending himself because he's insecure. They made a lot of accusations. If you were to reread that passage, 
and kind of go through the opposite of everything that he says he did, you'd see what the accusations were. Paul has a criminal record. You can't trust him. He's like we were treated outrageously in Philippi. Right? Paul's teaching is an error. This guy is delusional. It's like, no, we weren't teaching an error. This guy's motives are impure. He's like, no, I'm not motivated by, my motivations are not impure. You can kind of go through the opposite and see, you know, the sorts of things that were being said. He's doing this thing for personal glory. No, I'm not doing it for my own glory. He's doing this to build a reputation. All of these accusations, they didn't just come out of nowhere. In Thessalonica, there was this, it was a cosmopolitan trading city. So there was a convergence of just this plethora of worldviews. There were all sorts of uh, uh, all sorts of worship going on to the gods of the Olympian pantheon of Apollo or Athena or Hercules. There was Greek sort of mystic religions that were at place there. Historians tell us Dionysus. There were various cults, sex cults, drinking cults. Uh, Rome had uh, sort of these shrines to their political heroes. They sort of deified their political heroes. The emperor worship was in uh, absolutely in full force, and all of these you know, various uh, worldviews all had their missionaries who were all sort of amassing followings. So what these accusers were doing of Paul was they're saying, he's like all the rest. This guy is a ministry mercenary and he's just trying to amass a following. So Paul's responding here, not because he's insecure and trying to defend himself, but this is a strong defense because his concern is that this little fragile church is going to... uh, feel that the gospel, the message has been discredited. And sometimes when our integrity is attacked, we feel threatened and a need to defend ourselves. Sometimes the attacks are justified. Sometimes we lash out and we feel like our reputation is at risk because if you can destroy someone's reputation, you can destroy their credibility and everything that they sort of, you know, stood for can get erased. And so this isn't a personal thing for Paul. He's not like an insecure umpire. I was watching a Jays game the other week, and of course, uh, if, for those of you who don't watch baseball, there's a little white box on your screen, to, and the purpose of that is to destroy baseball. And, uh, but anyways, you see where the balls and strikes are, and so you just watch this umpire call a bunch of strikes that aren't strikes, and then the Jays, pit, uh, the Jays pitching coach Pete Walker goes out to the mound, and he's looking at the pitcher, but he's talking about the umpire, and the only reason that 41,000 people know this is that the umpire walked up, took one listen at what Pete Walker was saying and goes, that's it, you're out of here. And then all 42,000 of us are like, oh, I see, he was talking about the umpire and the umpire didn't like that and he got kicked out. Paul is not like an insecure umpire who, when his credibility is being threatened, he's like, that's it, he's got to... He is concerned for this church. He is motivated uh, uh, by their belief in the gospel and he loves and cares for them dearly. So this morning we want to focus on the importance of integrity. And I'm not just going to give you a, 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 you know, a moral teaching on integrity this morning. That's going to be part of it, which is good and helpful for our formation. But we are going to get to the good news of what motivated all of this integrity, of course. But nevertheless, the reason why this is, is uh, so significant is, again, uh, just to pick up where we left off last week. The church is under tremendous pressure. And the word that's used in the Greek to describe their pressure is the Greek word um, philipsis. And philipsis, it means, it it was a term they used to talk about crushing grapes. And I gave you that example of how in a couple of weeks' time, I'm going to be with my family crushing grapes. And we're going to do, my my family's been doing it for generations, and I'm late to the party learning how to do this. And when we're crushing the grapes in the press, you put the press together, and the whole purpose of philipsis is it's constant 
unrelenting pressure for the purpose of having something squirt out of it. And the church is under this constant unrelenting pressure. It's not just from the city, though it is, to sort of capitulate to the ideologies of the culture, how they think about the poor, how they think about value systems, how they think about what it means to be successful, and then for the Christians to say, oh, well, then that must mean what it means, whether it's sexual ethics, okay, well, whatever the city's saying that I'm saying, that's also true. There was those sort of pressures. But then there was also this pressure from the religious community saying, no, Jesus Christ is actually not the Messiah. He's not risen. This is nonsense. So there's just tremendous pressure on the church. And so Paul is now arguing, saying, hold on now. I'm not motivated as a mercenary. Integrity is uh, of the essence. And so we're going to look at two things this morning. The first thing is the importance of integrity. The second thing is the anatomy of integrity. I, and I, I did that because I said last week, I used four points last week, which I know created a rift in the homiletical theological you know, space-time continuum. Everybody was freaked out about it. Nobody, nobody more than me. So we're going to bring things back and just talk about two things today. Now, the importance of integrity, let's start here. Um, the message on our lips and the actions of our lives can present the gospel as compelling or a hurdle to belief. And uh, when we act with integrity, we, we discern what to do and we act accordingly with what we have discerned. And then we're honest about why we did it and our motives and everything's lined up. And we have moments like that, seasons like that. In our better moments, we can say, yes, I've operated in integrity. I'm trying to um, love my neighbor in integrity or lead my business with integrity or uh, you know, be a person of care. Uh, walk in consistent with moral integrity as the, the word of God would uh, guide uh, my values. We, we have those moments where we're like, yes, I am aligned. But we also have those other times in our lives where we channel you know, Hannah Montana, and we're like, you know, I kind of want the best of both worlds, uh, so we're going to say this, do that, communicate this thing publicly, but then privately, this is going on, um, and we're completely out of integrity, and we've, we have those times, and when we're, when we're confronted, and sometimes it, the confrontation is warranted, we can get defensive about it, um, and I think a lot of times, if we're honest, we have to concede that our motives are often mixed, because we are we're mixed. We're like, yeah, I, I did do this for your benefit, but also it selfishly made me look good. We can sort of concede that our motives are mixed. So this is actually a pretty challenging passage when Paul uses this super strong language to say, oh, my motives are not mixed. So there seems to be here this amazing, you know, spirit-driven uh, integrity that is a challenge to me it was a bit tremendous, tremendous challenge as I was studying for this morning but also there's this um, maturity that I desire that I think we should desire there's a maturity here and Paul says you know our in verse 1 he says our coming wasn't in vain first of all look at the fruit the results of the gospel there was tremendous life change in the lives of these uh, Christians in Thessalonica and they had become an example to other believers uh, in the way that they had lived their lives in such a congruence that they really were resembling more and more the life of Jesus Christ. And so Paul was saying, let's just look at the fruit. There's, there's power in what this message has actually uh, produced. And then in verse 4, he goes on to say, listen, we were not speaking to please men. Uh, we were speaking to please God. And uh, God's the one that tests the hearts. And even though Paul was a person who always 
desired to present the gospel in persuasive ways and attractive ways. He never compromised the content of the message. When he was in Athens, he spoke to the Greeks one way. When he was in Jerusalem, he spoke to the Jews one way. Because he was trying to contextualize it to say, you know, the deepest longings of your soul are found in the resurrected Jesus. And not only that, but what the resurrection represents, which is there will be an ultimate renewal of all things. And so the things that you crave, whether it's a body that doesn't break down in sickness and disease or a city that operates in generosity and love and care and justice and there's no injustice or oppression, whatever it is that you desire, that is ultimately going to be found in God. And uh, so he, even though he was sort of always contextualizing it, he never compromised the issues of our need, God's grace, God's judgment on sin, God's judgment on uh, the destructive nature of, uh, of uh, sin in the earth. He never shied away from any of all of those things. He was uncompromising in the content of the gospel message. But I want you to notice how he describes his delivery of the gospel message. He describes his delivery as gentleness. I'm like a gentle child. We were like children. Some of your English translations say children and not gentleness because you could translate the Greek that way. It's like we were like kids, non-threatening. He goes on to give two other images. He says we were like nursing mothers and encouraging fathers. So I'm going to be uncompromising on the content of this message, but let me just remind you the delivery of the message. I didn't come in there like a wrecking ball. But this, is what the, this is what the accusation is, but I didn't do that. We came in there like nursing, a nursing mother. That's not an ROI relationship. It's like it's all going one direction. It is my expense for your benefit. The nursing mother is just continually and endlessly giving of herself, of her sleep and her time and her body and her sanity. Just that agape, self-emptying love. He says it was like an encouraging father. That father that's just unrelenting like on the kids. Like, listen, I want you to flourish. I want you to flourish. Walk in this way, not this way. Develop these patterns, not these patterns. That encouraging father. I want you to live to God's glory. He says in um, verse 10, your witnesses. And that's when he uses the strong language of, we were holy, righteous, and blameless among you. Oh my goodness. I don't know that I would... I can be that bold as to use that. You know, I have moments like that, but I, that doesn't describe my life 24-7. But by grace and by God's grace, yeah, maybe we, maybe we desire that because that means that there's reform and renewal happening. And we're going to fail at it, of course, and we do fail at it, but this is ultimately who we were created to be. That's the desire to come into that integrity, the desire to come into that congruence. Paul is using this sort of provocative language to get them to see. If you go back to verse 12, the example of, um, of uh, the loving, encouraging father, he says, we were encouraging you to live lives, and he uses the phrase, worthy of the gospel. Well, if the gospel is a gift, which it is, you don't earn it, it's grace. So if that's true, how do you live worthy of a gift? Because it can feel a little bit like, look what God did for you, now get on your horse, because you've got to like, live, you've got to basically sort of morally earn what was given to you. But what he's, this is political language. He's saying, live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom. So you're called into a kingdom. So if there's a kingdom, there's a king. If there's a king, then there is a law. There is a way of flourishing under that king. And if this king is a king of grace and mercy, which he is, and he has given you his salvation by grace and mercy, then to come into congruence with that, this walking worthy of something is not, in, is, is not about earning. It's about emulation. He's saying, this is the pathway to true flourishing. Your soul is craving things, and the way to actually have just two handfuls of quiet in your soul 
is to not be following the wrong king. It's to be worshiping the king. So this is why he uses the strong language to encourage the importance of integrity. Let's move on to the second thing, the anatomy of integrity. If we kind of parse apart his language, if you were to read this through a number of times and really say, what is Paul really saying here? He kind of gives us, through the way that they lived their lives, the anatomy of integrity. His priorities shaped his motivations, and his motivations manifested in actions. What are all of the accusations against Paul? Hey, look, your motives are wrong. You know, we see through what you're up to. And he's like, we get it. And if someone's motives are dislocated, it's, those didn't just come from nowhere. The motives are flowing from a priority. Um, there's a theologian named Thomas Cranmer. He wrote a lengthy work on repentance called The Renewing Power of Love. And then there's this Anglican theologian named Dr. Ashley Null who sort of summarized this great work that Cranmer did and, and this, just, this great sentence, which is this. It's that what the heart loves, the will chooses and the mind justifies. Whatever you love, you choose, and whatever you choose, whatever you choose, your mind will justify the choice, because ultimately, it's what you love. You're following your appetite. We all follow our appetites. So as Cranmer's work unfolds, he's like, what do we need? We need new appetites. It's that, that, that's, this is the endless pastoral goal for me, is to not just get up here and say, look, some of you are living like that. Stop it. Live like that the word of the Lord and send you on your way. Because if I do that every week, there is no motivator for you to desire something new. The, 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 the endless work of the apostle was to present the gospel in compelling ways, not compromising the content, to sort of, you know, soften the message to the point where there's no uh, a bite to the implications of living a life apart from God. But to unapologetically say that, but to present the gospel for what it is, which is good news. Right? The gospel is not terrifying news. Euangelion in the Greek does not mean scare the hell out of people. So my goal here is not to get up here every morning and go, how do I present this in a way where they are literally trembling on their way home, thinking to themselves, my God, am I okay? It is good news. And Romans, Paul says, after a, a striking language about the judgment of God in chapter 1, he goes on to say that it is the goodness of God that leads to repentance. True godly sorrow. It is being confronted with the brokenness of having a small, puny, impotent Savior and the, the glorious reality of the ultimate Savior, and that recal recalibrates everything in our life accordingly. So the anatomy of integrity is, begins with the priorities. And Paul says, look, we weren't trying to please men. I wasn't trying to please you or anybody else. What he is doing is he's saying, we are made by God. We are made for God. We flourish in our lives as we go about our day-to-day vocation and recreation with God. And when that priority is, has the, the gravitational force of like displacing power of, of smaller affections, like, a, like an NFL linebacker doing a cannonball into a kiddie pool and just displacing all the water, the gospel comes in and just displaces the wayward affections. And Paul is saying, we're not trying to please anybody. 
This is coming from a place of true priority. We are made by God for God and we only flourish with God. And this is significant because if you have a wrong view of God, if God is a genie that you pray to to grant wishes, and then your wishes aren't granted, they're probably going to turn fairly quickly from that God. If God is some sort of cosmic weight staff, who exists for you to make your life more comfortable? Maybe every time a problem comes along, you summon the cosmic weight staff, and you ask him to take care of this fly in your ointment. He's not a cosmic genie. He's not cosmic weight staff. He is a divine loving father who is with us through all the suffering, carries us through all the suffering, and through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, gives us the evidence that one day there will be the eradication of all suffering. And so we don't look at the day-to-day in 2023 with the expectation that my life now should look like the not yet, because I'm not living in a not yet. I'm living in between. And that's a huge motivator for why Paul wrote this. When the, when, when the God of our own construct doesn't give us what, I want, what we want, who is God in that context exactly? In 2005, there was a book uh, written by two sociologists, Christian Smith and Melinda Denton, and they coined a phrase called moralistic therapeutic deism. And they said, this is how North Americans uh, think about God. Moralistic. You know, just be good and God will be good to you. Moralistic. So then every time you're good and something bad happens in life, you have a crisis of faith. Because after all, God's good to good people, right? God helps those who help themselves. That's not in the Bible, by the way. It's like Second Opinions 316. I have no idea where that came from. But it's just, I'm just letting you know for those of you who didn't. So, yeah, moralism. Moralistic. And then the therapeutic is what I just said. Oh, he's a cosmic genie. God exists for me. I don't exist for God. But what the Bible presents and what Paul knows is we in our, the smallness of our humanity have been swept up into a divine narrative that is culminating in restoration. And then there's the deism. And the deism piece means it's not a, it's not a personal God who loves me. This is a cosmic force that exists, the universe, to conspire to make things work favorably for me. Paul cuts through you know, all of the accusations that this is about him. And he's like, this is actually about God. And we've been swept up into this huge story arc. And, um, and so he lives his life uh, to please God. And this, of course, has changed his motives, uh, which he speaks about in verse 3, saying we didn't have impure motives. And one of the evidences of that is, again, you have to appeal to history, where Paul's kind of saying, this is ridiculous, guys. Why would my motives be impure? Is they beat him within an inch of his life in Philippi. And then when, what did he do? He gets up while his wounds are still bleeding and goes to Thessalonica to keep preaching the gospel. What is the motivator here? What is the, what is the motivator? You don't get beat within an inch of your life and then travel to another city to talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ because you're sort of wringing your hands together and going, oh man, we're really going to mess up Rome politically with this myth. This is an agape love, your benefit, my expense. You know, Jesus spoke to all of this about about having motives that are the integrity of, of motive. He said you can't love two masters in Matthew chapter 6, right? That's the way Jesus talked about it. You're going to love one, hate the other. You can't love two masters. James uses this wisdom in his very famous uh, writing in his letter where he says the double-minded person don't receive things from God because they're unstable in all their ways. To be double-minded in the Greek is to be, have a double psyche. Double-minded is sukos, sukos in the Greek. You can't have two psyches. 
It's, he, Paul is saying you can't be a spiritual schizophrenic. It just leads to this churning unrest. And so at the end of all this, Paul is saying that the, the true intentions are found in actions. If you and I are honest about the times that we are not in integrity and then we get called out on it, what's the first thing we do? We want to downplay our action and uplift our intention. We want to judge everybody else by the actions of their life, but we want to be judged by the intentions of our heart. What Paul, what, what Paul gives us here in the anatomy, of, the anatomy of integrity is we actually do what we want to do. And the sooner we're able to be honest with doing what we want to do, the healthier our friendships are going to be because we're going to be quicker to say, you know what, please forgive me, I was wrong. The stronger our marriages are going to be because we're going to stop gaslighting our spouses by saying, no, actually, here's another thing you have to think about rather than just sitting in the reality of what's up. The, the more we are able to bring the love, the wisdom, the care, the character of Christ to our vocations and to our businesses on Monday because we will be more and more in congruence and integrity with the nature of Jesus, which is that self-emptying love. Rather than saying, give me half marks for my intentions. No, there's no half marks for my intentions because even if I intended to do something, the thing I did is what I intended to do. That's why Paul is using such strong language here. No, 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 no. He's saying holy, blameless, righteous. He's like, I did what I wanted to do. I licked my wounds in Philippi. We put some bandages on that stuff. I got Timothy to ice my one shoulder, Silas to ice the other one. Then I went to Thessalonica. Then I preached the gospel to you. So these allegations are insane. And not only that, but I wasn't a tyrant. I was like a nursing mom and, a, and, a, and an encouraging father. That's why he's using such strong language. Uh, you know, the, one of the greatest movies of all time. Or sorry, let me correct that. The greatest movie of all time, The Princess Bride. Um, there's this tremendous love that the farm boy has for uh, the, the um, Princess Buttercup. And in the beginning... Uh, the old grandpa's narrating the story, and he all and he says, and Princess Buttercup said, "Farm boy, you know, fetch me that shovel as you wish. Farm boy, pick up that bale of hay as you wish." She's standing there. the The pitcher is six inches from her hand, and she says, "Farm boy, fetch me that pitcher." And the farm boy says, "As you wish." And then the old grizzled grandpa says, "But every time, the farm boy said, as you wish, what he was really saying was, I love you." And that is what happened in Paul's life. So every time the word of God said to him, live like this, not like that, you'll flourish, he says, as you wish. Every time the word of God says to you and I, put down this old way of living, acting, thinking, speaking. Put it down. It's unlike Jesus. Put this on. You and I don't have to cry about it like God is some sort of cosmic tyrant. Because for those of us who love God, who have been blown away by his grace, the response is, as you wish. This, is, this sacrifice is simultaneously worship. Have you ever seen somebody who's in love, how they relate to the person that they love? From the outside, it looks like they're being led around by their nose. But they are not being led around by their nose. They're happy to do it. I love Susan. Susan's like, hey, want to come with, want to come with me to Costco? Uh, no. Because I read Dante's Inferno. That's the seventh ring of hell. Uh, but I go with her to Costco because I love her. I want to, you know, I'm like, this is terrible on all levels, but you are great. So we'll walk around and we'll have some, you know, fun conversation in the seventh ring of hell. Paul is showcasing how the gospel motivates 
flowing from the ultimate priority of love for God. And so I close with this, our loving God of integrity, where in the cross we see the perfect demonstration of perfect mercy, of perfect justice, of perfect integrity. God did not just sit back and say, I I guess all of humanity is just going to be subject to my judgment and my wrath and death and hell. The God of all creation from the jump in Genesis 3 responded to our deserving of his judgment by moving throughout human history in grace. He's not hidden himself. He's written his love across the stars. And so may we live our lives with lips and lives in congruence, live in a new humanity. May we be motivated by the tremendous grace and love that we have received. When God's word calls us to live in congruence with our new nature, may our response be, as you wish. Amen. Let's pray.